Okay, thank you. Bridge kids, you are dismissed. I always wonder why everybody wants to sit in the back. You know, I used to take care of that in the old days. Back in my early years, we, we had a group of Sunday morning, the church was full. But we had, according to our constitution, we had a Sunday night service. And we had 35 senior adults that sat in the back. And they made me be at the pulpit on the platform. So I changed all of that. I got out a music stand and I put it on the floor. Then I moved the music stand over here. Then I made everybody come up front. It took about six months, but they all changed. What are we going to do with all this space up front? Okay, enough said. Glad to have a week's vacation. Uh, last week we worshipped with a church plant in St. Augustine, 75 to 100 people. They had great worship. Uh, Honored God's word, great preaching. It was a neat experience to be with another church plant and a healthy one, one year into their launch. We are in the book of Ephesians. Today we're in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and I also want to say I'm very grateful that John Peters filled in. Uh, we have so many great men who can uh, speak here at the bridge, and I appreciate John. Ephesians chapter 3. How many have heard of the name, it's a code name, Operation Dynamo? That's what I thought because it's brand new to me. Um, This was a code name for an historic evacuation of Dunkirk at the beginning of World War II in 1940. Now some of you are, are familiar with Dunkirk. In the spring of 1940, this is a year and a half before the United States was engaged in World War II. Uh, in the spring of 1940, Hitler's panzer divisions moved through Europe with ease. They just walked through Poland. Uh, the Dutch surrendered. The Belgians surrendered. They just walked all over France. And uh, the British army was retreating. This is hard to picture. 250,000 British troops are at Dunkirk at the coast and they can't get out because the British Navy can only remove 17,000 of them before the German army arrives. There are another 100,000 Allied troops. So you're looking at 350,000 or so uh, troops that need to escape. They face capture or death. And the uh, German army was closing fast. They were a few miles away. And and, uh, the good news is um, German leadership, namely Hitler, wasn't so sure that they needed to go for this just immediately. So he kind of slowed things down. The problem, um, and the British Navy uh, can only remove 17,000. So it looks like a disaster is inevitable. On May 26, 1940, a bizarre uh, fleet of ships came up on the horizon from the English Channel in the morning. There were trawlers, tugboats, fishing sloops, lifeboats, sailboats, pleasure craft, an island ferry named Gracie Fields, the America, America's Cup Challenger called Endeavor, over 800 boats, and they're all manned by civilians with one 
objective was to rescue those troops. In eight days, it took eight days, and there was a loss of 68,000 who were fighting to keep the Germans at bay. They rescued 338,682 troops uh, during those eight days and took them across the English Channel to England. It was the most remarkable rescue in naval history. You know, the church is a lot like that ragtag group, the band together for that mission to rescue those people. The church is made up of all kinds of people. It's like all those boats were not what you would call a navy. Um, The church is made up of people, all kinds, all types. They are imperfect. They have flaws. And yet God has called us to a rescue mission. It's even greater than 338,000. And um, it's... An unbelievable task. And that's what Paul reminds us of in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. So we're going to look at Ephesians 3 this morning, the first uh, part of the chapter. Let's just read uh, that first uh, six verses together. This is uh, the first part of the passage. And here's, here's how what Paul says to the Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... And now he's going to be sidetracked in verse 2. He started in a subject, and now he's going to change gears. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I've already written briefly, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So in verses 1 through 6, before I look at verses 1 through 6, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 1, okay. Now, so Paul starts in verse 1, and he's not going to pick the thought up again until verse 13. That's our last verse this morning. And so verses 2 through 12 are his aside. He goes, oh, by the way, I'm just reminded, I've got to tell you something. That encourages me because that's how I teach sometimes. I get started in one direction, something comes to my mind, and I go over here and talk about it for a while. Then I come back, if I remember. Paul remembers... But see how it fits the verse 1 verse 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And here's what he's asking. I ask you, verse 13, therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So those are connected, and we're going to connect those uh, later. But I want, you to, I want you to see that from the beginning. Verses 1 through 6 is the mystery of God's grace in Christ. And first, the minister. You know, minister is one of those words. When I grew up, a minister was like a professional. He was clergy. He was a man of the cloth. He wore a robe and had a turned around collar. And he was special. And I wasn't. I got that. And uh, 
But that's not necessarily the biblical perspective of what a minister is. And Paul describes himself as a minister. And we're going to see how that develops. But verse 1, he says, for this reason. Now, if you're a Bible student, whenever you see a for this reason, you have to ask that question. What is the reason? What is he talking about? Well, we've got to go back to the context. So I have to take you back two weeks ago. Uh, where we left off in chapter 2. And I'll read uh, just two verses of three verses from, Latin, from two weeks ago. And here's the reason. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, Gentile being all non-Jewish people, Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, referring to the Jewish people, that done in the body by the hands of men, the physical circumcision, which caused some of those people, the Jewish people, to feel more valuable than others because God had them do this. They were marked. Verse 12, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That was your status. But now, this is what it's all about. But now in Christ Jesus You who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You've been brought into something that's brand new. Jewish and the Gentile people in Christ have now become one and they are now equal. We're going to call it the church. And it's brand new. And it started in Acts chapter 2. Okay, you got the reason down. For this reason, for what he just said, I, Paul... And he reminds them who he is, though they already know, and he's already identified himself clearly in verse 1, that he's the writer. I, Paul, and he does this for emphasis, for focus, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you, Gentiles, you who are non-Jewish people, the Ephesians from the church in Ephesus. Um, Paul identifies himself as a prisoner. And he says he's a prisoner of Jesus. Was Paul a prisoner? Yes. Paul is in Rome under house arrest where we left him off in Acts 28. And of course, you all remember Acts 28. And Paul was a prisoner. And this is called a prison epistle or prison letter because Paul is in chains when he writes. Interesting how Paul views this. He said, are you a prisoner of Rome? Nope. Are you a prisoner of the Jewish people? Nope. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. This is huge. Implications about how Paul understood what was happening in his life. He could have blamed the Jewish people. It was in Jerusalem that he was arrested and it took two years to get to Rome. And then he stayed in prison two years, four years. Paul has said on the, on the sidelines. And yet he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I've been walking with Jesus and I've walked right into this. It's where God wants me. And he's, he's going to tell the Ephesians not to worry about it because they seem worried about his circumstances. That uh, He's been arrested? That, that, that seems like a failure. Paul, what's wrong with you? Why are you arrested? Is there something wrong with your Christianity? Or is there something wrong with God? Has God failed? This Christianity thing seems pretty weak. Paul says, no, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for your sake. 
Okay, let's go to verses 2 and 3. Finally, we're going to go through the passage. The responsibility of the minister. First, we recognize Paul, the minister. Now, the responsibility. He says, verse 2, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. There might be a few people here who don't like the word dispensation, which I like. It's a very good word, dispensationalism, like that's somehow a bad word. It's this word administration here. The Greek word is okonomia. It means economy. It means stewardship. It means Paul has a stewardship right now. And we have a stewardship of responsibility as well. Uh, and it's, here he's not talking about money. Uh, you've heard about the administration or dispensation of God's grace that was given to me. It was given. It was a gift. It was given to Paul. And he, Paul is reminded, you've heard the story of how I, how I received this, um, res, this commissioning from, from God. It was Acts chapter 9. It was on the road to Damascus. You've heard, heard my story. I was the persecutor of the church. I hated Christians. I thought they were disobedient. I thought they should be put to death. And so we just took this seriously. And on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus in power. Jesus knocked him to the ground and explained. You know, just when you see Jesus raised from the dead, uh, Paul began to get it. Uh, This Jesus thing is real. He is who he said he was. He died on the cross and he's been raised again. And Jesus gave him a commission to take this message to the non-Jewish people. Those people outside of the nation of Israel. And um, he says, so you've heard about that, right? That's what God gave me. And uh, verse 3. This is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly back in uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul's charge. This is his stewardship. And he is responsible for it. God has said, Paul, not only have you been given the gift of salvation... You've been given a key role to serve God. You've been given a key role to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to uh, non-Jewish people, especially. Um, this, the word mystery here is a technical term that refers uh, in the Bible to something not yet revealed. Um, Something that um, is new information. It wasn't, you know, they had all the Old Testament. We have, that's 39 books for us. And all the promises of God. And this was not in the Old Testament. This was a mystery. Uh, we call it a sacred secret. Secret of God. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Moses wrote that in about the 15th century B.C. And now nothing was written about this mystery about Jews and Gentiles becoming equal in Christ when a Jew could place their faith in Christ, a Gentile, a non-Jewish man, or woman could place their faith in Christ, they would become equal, heirs of all the promises of God in Christ. 
It was a huge, huge change. We just take it for granted. It's because we just inherited this truth. But it was a huge change. And it was a mystery. And it was made known to Paul personally by Jesus on the road uh, to, to Damascus. And uh, the amazing thing about how Paul views this is that Paul sees it, that it was Jesus who arrested him on the road to Damascus. And it was Jesus uh, who knocked him down and revealed all of this mystery to him. And uh, it was Jesus who will take him to all these places and he will face severe persecution. And he doesn't want the Ephesians to worry about it. Um, the mystery uh, of Christ is revealed, verses 4 through 6. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to God's holy apostles and prophets. So this word mystery is used four times uh, in our passage this morning. So think about this. 2200 B.C., Abraham, the one that God selected to give his promises to, he hadn't heard about this. This was a mystery. Uh, 15th century, Moses, God's great deliverer. We went through Exodus, remember, with the story of Moses. This is new to Moses. He didn't hear about this. Uh, David, the great king, 10th century before Christ. He didn't know about this. They knew a lot of information. They knew that God was going to bless the Gentiles. They had no idea that God was going to put the Gentiles on equal plane with the Jewish people. That was uh, revolutionary in in a concept. 8th century B.C., Isaiah, probably the greatest prophet. We call him the prophet of the gospel. He didn't know about this. He knew that there would be a blessing for the Gentiles. He didn't know about this. This was a mystery. Um. It was revealed in the first century by the Holy Spirit to God's apostles and the prophets. These are New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. The apostles were those who had seen the risen Christ, the early disciples, and they were commissioned by him to take the good news into the world. These are the apostles. And Paul already said in chapter 2 that they were the foundation to the church. The mystery was revealed to them. I think it first came to church on the road to Damascus. The mystery of what the church would become. And it's Paul who will teach the other apostles. And and Peter recognizes that Paul, he talks about, he's a very intellectual person and his things are hard to understand. That's Peter's perspective on the apostle Paul. Verse uh, 6, this mystery that is through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. And that's the mystery. Members together of one body, equal, shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ, equal. This is the mystery uncovered. So, verses 1 through 6 is about the mystery of God's grace in Christ. Now we're going to talk about the ministry of God's grace in Christ, verses 7 through 13. 
And first, we go back to the minister. Verse 7, back to Paul. He says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace. It was a gift. Becoming a servant was a gift. We think it's a chore. Paul thought it was a gift. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And God provided the power. God provided the energy. He didn't have to do it in his own strength. I wonder if it's sometimes we get tired of serving is because we do too much in our own strength. We don't rely on Christ who empowers us to do the things that he wants us to do. Not just the things we want to do or think we need to do, but the things that he wants us to do. So this is, this is the key concept here. The word for minister, it can be translated, is the same word for servant here. It's diakino, diakino, kainos, diakinos, thank you, I got it. And it, uh, well, there's another word that means ministry, and this is minister. Diakinos, and it means deacon. Same word that is in the New Testament for deacon. And it's a table waiter. It's a server. And, and Paul has become a server for Jesus. He's become a server for the gospel of Christ. What do you look for? in a good server. You know, when you go to a restaurant and you're willing to pay to have somebody bring you food and you know there's going to be an opportunity for a tip, what do you look for in a good server? Do you like people who are kind and pleasant and helpful and humble and are concerned about you? I wonder if that would be a good approach to considering how you might be a server of the good news. And maybe we'll give you a tip. Okay. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. The ministry defined, verses 8 and 9, and this is the stewardship, the, the, this administration of the gospel. Stewardship, dispensation, it's defined here. Verses 8 and 9. He says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. And that's Paul's attitude here. It's very humble. Uh, I think he had a good understanding of who he was. But he realizes um, he's less than the least of all the Lord's people. He doesn't deserve anything special. Um, He recognizes that his ministry was a gift from God. It was a gift from Jesus. It was his responsibility to proclaim and to make known the boundless riches of Christ. Uh, This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Uh, Another uh, NIV translation is unfathomable. It's you can't delve in. You can spend the rest of your life studying the riches of Christ. And you won't get them all. And, and, and they're given to you. If you place your faith in Christ, they're given to you. You have them. You are rich in Christ. If you understood from an eternal perspective what you've been given, you would be overwhelmed. One day you will be. 
you will be absolutely overwhelmed. And this uh, ministry, this stewardship, verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry. Paul's responsibility is to proclaim Christ uh, to his world, but he's also responsible to instruct the church, um, their role in this, to teach the church about their responsibility to rescue and disciple people. To make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, which for ages past was hidden in God. Remember, it's a mystery. It was hidden who created all things. Verses 10 through 12, the ministry intent or purpose. Look at verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This is unique. Follow this along. This is his, God's intent. This is God's in purpose. That was right now, first century, when Paul talked about this. Through the church, the body of Christ, and that applies to us today. We are the body of Christ. This manifold wisdom of God, it's many-faceted. It's like a diamond with many facets. It's not simple. It's complicated, folks. Uh, the... The wisdom of God is complicated. You're, you're just not going to figure it out. Oh, I got it now. Well, you get part of it, and it's good, but there's more. Hang in there. You'll get it. Stay in there. Because one day it's all going to be revealed. Uh, his, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Who are the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms? They're the angels. They're demons. They're spiritual beings. They're all through the book of Ephesians. This is God's intention. Whether you understand it or not, God's intent is that when you follow Jesus and honor him, you're on display to the angels. And they don't get this. They don't understand And they're learning about it as we go. The angels are still learning about God's manifold wisdom in the gospel. And as you live it out, it's having a huge impact in the spiritual realm. It's a kind of spiritual warfare as we walk with Christ. And he wins. The angels aren't very impressed when we do our own thing. They just probably can laugh because we're doing our own thing. Um, So this is God's intention. It's verse 11. It's according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This was always God's plan. It is his plan right now. He chose it. He wants it. It's his intention That his church be on display living out truth. That his church be on display advancing the gospel. As the church is on mission, helping people connect with God and developing them into fully devoted followers of Christ. The church is on display to the angels. Verse 12, in him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's like, well, I already know that. 
This is, this is huge. Now, Paul says, anyone who is in Christ can approach God with confidence. It doesn't make any difference what your racial background is or your educational background. It doesn't make any difference if you're a Jew or a Gentile or male or female, whether you're slave or free. Anyone, not based on your economic level, anyone can approach God with confidence. This is equality in Christ for those who have placed their faith in Christ. And finally, we come to verse 13, the minister's concern, Paul's concern. And I've already mentioned it. We've already read this. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering, which my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is important to Paul to communicate to the Ephesians that his being in jail, that his circumstances were tough, that, you know, it seemed like the gospel was in chains because the messenger was in chains. And Paul says, I want you to know it's not the way it is. You know, this is maybe the world's perspective. That's a human perspective. It seems like things are failing. It's, I'm, things aren't going well. I'm not comfortable. I don't like chains. I don't like being in this place 24 hours a day. I wish I could go to Jerusalem. And he says, I don't want you to be discouraged about this for my sufferings. He doesn't, he doesn't um, say he's not suffering. He doesn't say it's not, he's not uncomfortable. He's not saying... Oh, it was nothing. He's not saying that. He's, he's pretty clear about his past uh, experience. He's been in prison many times, and this is a four-year stint. He was beaten severely many times. He was once stoned and left for dead. Um, he was uh, whipped by the Jewish people four, uh, five times with 39 lashes each time. And that, you know, that they didn't want to go 40 because they thought he might die because that was their tradition, that was their practice. Uh, three times he was beaten with rods, you know, those canes. And, you know, they didn't just make it easy. It was, it was uh, harsh. Uh, he was shipwrecked three times. He was in constant danger of his life. He was under stress for the sake of the gospel. And he just says, uh, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings. I'm not discouraged. Don't you be discouraged by my sufferings. Paul recognized he was not the victim. He recognized he was being used by God to bring glory to Christ. Okay. You know, you know we've talked about Ephesians and uh, six chapters in the book. The first three focus on our position in Christ. There are no commands. We had no commands in this passage today. And then the last three focus on our practice. And by the way, that's coming. And they're just one command after another. And that's coming. But this first three chapters focus on our identity in Christ, what we have in the gift of Christ. Um, we talk about our doctrine, the first three chapters, and the last three chapters are duty. So uh, let me uh, suggest some implications from this passage for us, and I want to call them my responsibilities. The first responsibility I have is that I am a minister. Not the clergy type, but servant. I am a server 
for Jesus. I think that's true for you too, if you're a follower of Christ. Uh, John 12, 26, Jesus said this. He said, whoever serves me as a server, because that's a, a diakonos, it's a, it's a deacon, table waiter. Whoever serves me must follow me. Just in case you get confused about that. You, can't, you need to serve and you need to follow. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And, uh, or ministers. That's another way to say it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, just like this. He has made us competent as ministers. I am a minister. You are a minister. We are ministers. Servers. Deacon or deaconess of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. The Holy Spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life and enables people to be born again. I am a minister. You are a minister. Secondly, I have been given a ministry, just like Paul. And I would suggest you have been given a ministry, just like Paul. And our ministry is this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. You've probably seen me use this verse quite a few times. All this is from God, Paul says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, there it is, the ministry, the serving role of reconciliation. We have a ministry, and it's about reconciliation. It's about helping people reconcile to God. We come into this world, and we are immediately at enmity with God. We don't glow, grow closer to God apart from Christ. We have to come to faith in Christ to become a part of his family and to be able to be inherit the promises and actually become a follower of Christ. And so we become reconciled. And our job now is to help other people be reconciled. Reconciled to God. Help them understand who God is and who Jesus is. Who we are. And how we can have that relationship. The implications go further. We are to be reconcilers of people too. Especially in the body of Christ. Because God's whole plan has been to make these groups of people into one. Not so there would be segregation in the world, but there would be unity in Christ of all people, economic peoples. And we are to be reconcilers. I think the, how about it even in the home? Sometimes husband and wife need to be reconciled. Sometimes parents and children need to be reconciled. We are to be reconcilers. Helping people restore relationships. Um, verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them as he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we've been giving a ministry of reconciliation. We've also been given the message that is the good news, the gospel that Jesus Christ died for us. He died for me. He died in my place. I deserve the death. The wages of sin is death. But he took my place. He paid. My penalty is paid for. It was paid for 2,000 years ago. didn't do me any good until September 29, 1974 at 4.30 in the morning. When I placed my faith in Christ and I received forgiveness of sins and I received the gift of eternal life. That is the message. And that's when I became reconciled to God. And we've been given this message. It's good news. 
Thirdly, I have a responsibility, and you have a responsibility, I would suggest. We are therefore, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And you've heard me use this passage many times because I love this concept of being an ambassador. I don't have to go around preaching at people and telling them they're going to hell. I don't have to go around correcting people. I just need to be an ambassador. I just need to represent Jesus and represent him well and represent him accurately. Yes, he's concerned for truth and justice. And he's also concerned for mercy and love and kindness. And he treated, um, he, he treated uh, sinners uh, quite well. And he was very harsh with religious people. And I just need to represent Jesus well as his ambassador. So people get an idea uh, what Jesus is like. Uh, also, I like the way Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Um, he says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And I picked this for you, Team World Vision runners and walkers. Because you know there's a race coming. And you have to train for it. And you're working hard at it. Run in such a way as to get the prize. But Paul has something in mind. He wants to use this as an illustration. And it's a very good one, but he, it's a metaphor. He, he's telling us a story to make a, a, a truth, to, to make a statement about the Christian life. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, discipline. They, 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 they work, they rest, they exercise their muscles, they uh, concerned about what they eat. They do it to get a crown that will not last in the Olympics. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. We're talking now about the Christian life. Verse 26, therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. Uh, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. He's not a shadow boxer, you know. He's not doing this. He's going to be intentional. He's going to be focused on the prize. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. That's a really practical one, Christian. He's saying, in this life, my body is my slave, is my servant. I don't want my body to run my life. I don't want my body telling me how to live. He wants to be in submission, ultimately, to Christ. And so... He practices discipline for this life so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He says, after I've proclaimed the gospel, I don't want my life to get in the way of people coming to faith. I don't want them to look at me and say, man, if you're a Christian, I don't want to be like you. He says, I want to live in a way that reflects Jesus so people can see him. And then uh, verse 23, next slide. This is how he started that passage. This was his purpose. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. This was his motive for living. Question, what about you? What is your motive for living? Last one, number four. I have a grand purpose more important than my comfort. This is one big principle that Paul was displaying in Ephesians chapter 3. He had a grand purpose, and it was more important than his comfort. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. 
Paul used this concept in many places. Here in 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, physically, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Now, Paul was an older gentleman, somewhat like myself. He was still getting around. But he'd been on earth for quite a few years. And he knew that things were changing. He couldn't do what he used to do. You know, when you get older, you get wrinkles. Sometimes your hair falls out. Your joints may ache. Things change. He says, we're just wasting away. Sometimes we get disease. Sometimes we get injured easily. And we're just wasting away. At least on the outward, physically. But yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day in, in Christ through the Holy Spirit. We're being revived. We're being renewed. Our mind and our heart is being renewed. That which is eternal. We can keep growing. For our light. Notice what he says here. This, is, this can be really hard to embrace. But here's what Paul says about his suffering. Believe me, he'd been beaten many times. I mean, real pain. He, he, uh, he sometimes starved. He's, he's some, he's some, he was in ex, uh, ex, exposed to the elements, like nearly freezing to death kind of thing. Um, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He's saying the stuff in this life, yeah, it's real, it hurts, it's real pain. Let's not deny that. But when you're following Christ, there's something way bigger, and someday we'll see it, and we don't see it now. It's not yet. Next slide. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know what? That's gotten the, ch- the, uh, the church through persecution for 2,000 years, and it still is today. But we don't know a lot about persecution here. Um, I'd like to close with uh, an illustration. I've used this before, and it really was not too long ago, and some of you remember it, but it just really seemed fitting. Uh, In his book called The Call to Joy and Pain... A Christian leader from Sri Sri Lanka, Ajith Fernando, who uh, has a ministry to the urban poor. He writes this, and he's writing about the West. The church in each culture has its own special challenges, theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. So consider that we may have a theological blind spot. He says, I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering, on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is an inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The good life, comfort, convenience, and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. I'm afraid that's come into the church. But somehow we think if Jesus is on our side, he's going to make us happy. 
And if Jesus is on our side, he would want us to be comfortable. And I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, I know it's not the case. He says, if they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth. For God intends us to grow through our trials. Let's stand to pray. Father, we uh, live in a country where we are blessed and you have provided so well for us. We do have so many comforts. We have so many benefits and uh, opportunities uh, to pursue health and safety. And uh, we have such uh, good medical treatment in this country. And we, we just at times take things for granted. God, thank you for providing for us so well. Thank you most of all for grace, for providing Jesus for us. Help us to appreciate the riches, the unfathomable riches we have in Christ. Help us to grow in our understanding. I pray that you'll open the eyes of our heart that we may see your power and your love. That we may appreciate who we are in Christ and what you've done for us and what that means for eternity. Help us to handle the trials we have. Give us your strength. And even when it's difficult, may we honor you humbly and trust you because we don't know where things are going. We don't know why things happen. But we know that you do. And one day we'll see the big picture. Help us not to live in a blind spot. For Jesus' sake, amen.